This morning we are continuing our series on eschatology. Eschatology is the doctrine of end times, that is what happens in the last days, what the Bible says about the future events, the return of Christ, the tribulation, uh, the rapture, the millennium, the final judgment, all of those things. And for the past few weeks, we have covered the church age, uh, we covered the rapture, uh, last week we covered the tribulation period, and our overview for all of this has been the idea of readiness. That you, as a Christ follower, you must be ready. You have to be ready for the return of Jesus. He described uh, that those whom He left, uh, when He comes back, He wants to find them active and involved and ready for His return. We're supposed to be watching and waiting and working and living a specific way in preparation for the return of Jesus Christ. And the overall idea behind this five-week sermon series is readiness. That from a pastor's heart to the people who hear his voice on a regular basis, your call, your role is to be ready, to be living in such a way that if Jesus were to come back today, you would not be ashamed, uh, you would not be caught off guard, but that you would be eagerly waiting for him. I read a blog post this week by Cherie Letterman, and she talked about becoming a grandparent any day now. Their first grandchild is due. And she wrote this wonderful post about her eager expectation about finding the news that her child was pregnant and that she was going to be a grandmother and that all of a sudden she's noticing baby carriers and strollers and walking in stores and hearing baby noises and all these different things began to fill her with a longing, an expectation, a looking forward to. And she acknowledged that this is very similar to the way in which we are to live for Christ in a daily longing, watching sort of way. We also have described over this sermon series that if you know the future, you will live differently today. Many people find themselves content to be in sort of an ignorant bliss. I don't need to know about the end times. All I need to know is, uh, you know, at some point God takes care of it, but I don't need to know the details. And my contention has been that you will live differently today in light of what you know about the future. If I were to tell everyone here that in three weeks or three months we're all going on a, on a cruise or we're all going hiking In Colorado, we're going to climb a 14,000-foot mountain. Knowing what will happen in the future will change what you do today. You'd go out and buy some hiking boots, and you would start to break them in, and you would start to get in walking shape and hiking shape, and you would buy gear and all those kinds of things. You would live differently today if you knew of a future event. You all do this. If you plan to run a race or the birth of a child or a job change or a new season in life as maybe graduating from school or about to get married or in some way, some future event causes you to live differently. Probably most people in the room have thought about retirement if they haven't started saving. And and we will expend all kinds of time and knowledge and energy and resources to plan for a 20 to 30 year period of our life, but we will spend zero time in spiritual and physical and mental preparation for the end times. The majority of the world does not give their afterlife much thought at all. And this is against 
the revelation of Scripture. And so Jesus tells us, if you turn to Matthew chapter 24, He says, skipping down to verse 36, He's been talking to His disciples about the end times, about all the things that will take place at the end. And then He says in verse 36, "...but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, nor the, but the Father only." Just as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, and one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, verse 42 is our key phrase, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and he would not have let his house be broken into. Again, he says, verse 44, Therefore, you must also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We should be in an expectant a sort of state of mind, right? A, a longing for, a looking forward to, and a knowledge of the end times. You should have a base understanding of the trajectory of history, especially as Jesus has predicted it, and He has said it many times over, and you know the book of Revelation. If you turn over to the book of Revelation, it's a book that oftentimes, I'm, I'm always surprised when I hear a person say to me, I never read the book of Revelation. I just don't need to know, right? I'm scared. I don't understand all the signs and symbols and things. I just don't understand it. And so people avoid this book for some reason. But Jesus gives clear instruction. It was written to John, the beloved apostle, on the island of Patmos in the year around 90. And John says in chapter 1 that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, which was a Sunday. And as he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, he saw this vision of Jesus. And Jesus started to unfold for him the end times. And if you follow the natural chronology of the book of Revelation, Jesus comes in chapter 1, He gives John a basic message. In chapters 2 and 3, He gives him letters to deliver to seven churches that have specific relevant information for those churches at that time. They were real churches. Uh, Then in chapters 4 and 5, he describes this upwardly heavenly experience where the redeemed and believers and elders and apostles and the 12 tribes, uh, the the patriarchs, they were all there worshiping in this heavenly experience in chapters 4 and 5, waiting for one who is righteous to unroll and break this seven-sealed scroll. And John said he wept because there was no one found who could unroll the scroll until it was given to a lamb who was slain. And Jesus takes the scroll and thus begins chapter 6 through 19, the tribulation period. It's the natural chronology of the book of Revelation. If you get to the end of chapter 19, you see that the end of the tribulation has come. Jesus has come in verse 16. There is Armageddon where the Antichrist and his false prophet and all of the battles, all the 
wicked and uh, unrighteous people through the tribulation come together to fight a battle against Jesus, and then Jesus wins. If you skip over to chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. This is the eternal kingdom, sandwiched between the tribulation and the eternal kingdom of 19 and 21 is our focus for today. And probably next week, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 20, and it's going to describe for us the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And that's the natural chronology of Revelation. And so if, uh, if you're, we're going to talk about the different views this morning, and we'll probably just get into some introductory material and a little bit of Revelation 20, but I want you to read, we're going to read Revelation 20, and I want you to see the general outline. There's basically five things that we're going to see about the millennium. Let's read it together, Gen- uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 through uh, 15. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss. And he had a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. That's point one. We'll cover that towards the end of the sermon today. The first thing you need to know about the the millennium is that Satan is gone. His army is gone. They are incarcerated. They are bound. And they are no longer wreaking havoc in the earth. That's good, right? That's good news. So the first thing you need to know about the millennium is Satan is abolished. He is put into prison. The second thing you need to see uh, is the second point, verse Then I saw thrones, and seated on those thrones were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This describes those who died in the midst of the tribulation. We described that one view that we... I happen to hold to, and others, that the church has been raptured at the beginning of the tribulation, the seven-year period of tremendous pain and suffering and, and terrible things happens. The church comes back at the end of the tribulation to set up the kingdom of Jesus. And at that time, there is a, another resurrection of the believers who gave their life to Christ in the midst of the tribulation. They all come back all these on these thrones, and they're given responsibility in Jesus' new kingdom. Millions of people coming back to, with Jesus in their glorified bodies to have a literal governing role under the authority and headship of Christ on this rejuvenated, renewed earth. That's what we find. That's our second point. They come to reign. Look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Who is the rest of the dead? All those who are unbelievers. They aren't resurrected until the very end of the thousand years, until the great day of the Lord for judgment. Blessed and holy, verse 6, are the ones who share in the first resurrection. That's 
the resurrection of the saints and the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and the resurrection of the tribulation saints. It's one resurrection in sort of three parts. The resurrection of the church age, the tribulation saints, and the Old Testament saints all resurrected, coming back to reign with Christ for this thousand year period. So that's the second point that we're going to see, maybe not this morning, we may not get to that. So Satan bound and imprisoned is the first point you need to know about the millennium. The second point is the righteous, the resurrection of the righteous who come to rule with Jesus, verses 4 through 6. The third thing about the millennium is that at the end of it, when the thousand years are ended, verse 7, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. So there is one final battle. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had already been sent. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that's the third thing that you need to see is that Satan will be released and he will deceive the nations. The fourth thing that we'll see in the millennium period is the end. It will culminate, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and the one who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. And then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and all the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in these books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the the basic outline, the skeleton outline of the millennium and the things that will take place. But I want you to know that this is just an outline. And let me back up for a minute and describe for us, well, by the end of this sermon and next week, you should have a basic understanding of the millennium. That's the overall outline. You'll have a basic understanding of the millennium. You'll have a general idea of different theories about the millennium so that you can sort of pick and choose for yourself uh, and give yourself an educated chance to understand what this millennium will look like and where you and your convictions lie. And the last thing you'll have is a hope for the future and an inspiration to live for Christ in the present. There was a time when I, maybe a few years ago in seminary, I was just personally challenged to attempt to share the gospel with as many people as I could. It was my desire to share the gospel and attempt to share the gospel with as many people as I could. And so I set a goal to reach 10,000 in three years. And so I bought 10,000 pieces of literature, and, uh, and I set out on a goal uh, just to, to have meaningful conversations with people about the gospel, about Jesus, about salvation, about uh, who He is, and just to dialogue with people. And every time I would do that, I would call it an at-bat. <laughs> and then my goal was to get 10,000 at-bats. I think I kind of fizzled out at like 8,200 or something like that. But in the midst of those, there are really a handful of stories that stick out to me. One happened in a little suburb of Louisville, Kentucky, a place where uh, 
you know, over in the Kentucky, it's like horse racing and bourbon and whiskey. And there was this little town outside of a whiskey distillery. And uh, I'd found myself with about 4,000 tracks and had plotted out a neighborhood and spent two or three days praying through that neighborhood. And then would go back and I would just go door to door and I would knock on the door and I would ask the person who answered. I would just simply say, I've been praying for you and for this house, for this neighborhood, just generally, and wanted to know if there's anything specifically I can pray for you about. And I just would look down with a, a little notepad and a pen, and I would just wait an awkward 20 seconds, right? How many of you hate silence? Right? A few of you, I know, because in my small groups, I sort of have these pregnant like pauses where I just ask a question, and it gets real awkward for like 10 seconds. So I would do that. I would wait, and I would allow the person to know that I'm serious, I'm sincere, I really want to know if there's anything I can pray for them about. In all humility, with as much sort of love as I could muster, just how can I serve you by praying for you? And as I would do that, I would, they would, oftentimes things would come. And, and I would write down, and then a list would flow. Very rarely did anybody turn down a prayer, an opportunity to pray. My next step, if I felt a green light, is I would pray with them right there. Can I pray with you now? And then after that, oftentimes a conversation would flow. And it was just very natural, and it was just a part of kind of who I was, and I was using that as just a way to share the gospel. But this one guy, I knocked on his door, and I went through that sort of prayerful routine, and I'd already walked through their neighborhood a few times, so I had confidently prayed as I looked at every house, and so as I got to his house, I can still remember his door and his porch and his driveway and everything, and I went through that routine, and I asked him, I've been praying for your neighborhood and wanted to know if there's anything specific I can pray for you about. And I looked down at my paper and I got my pen ready and I just began to pray as I always did. Lord, allow something to come to mind. Allow him to think of something and let this, if it's your will, be an opportunity for me to share my faith. And I just went through the whole routine. And after an awkward, even for me, 30 or 45 seconds, I looked up and, and he was struggling. I could see it on his face. He just wasn't connecting and, and uh, it, something was wrong. I could tell there was a disconnect. And I said, really, it could be anything. And I'm not trying to pry or, or be personal and if it's if i'm being too personal i apologize and i can just pray for you generally and he just said no it's not that i have plenty of things that i could tell you to pray about and i'll just never forget he said i just don't have any hope in the one that you think hears you i have no hope at all that anyone is listening and i'd never encountered someone who so poignantly expressed hopelessness have you ever met somebody who was utterly hopeless that even a chance to pray wasn't engaged in. Even just, he, you know, he could have just said, no, I don't believe any of this, but maybe you do. Maybe you, you can pray for me. It wasn't even that. It was, I don't want to say anything because I don't think that anybody hears you. And it wasn't out of a sense of skepticism. It was out of a sense of shattered hopelessness. That sort of thing we call despair. Being hopeless is one thing. Being continually hopeless puts you in a state of despair. And despair is a terrible place to be. There may be people in the room who are in utter despair. You think maybe suicidal thoughts or you're struggling with depression or you're engaged in self-destructive behaviors. In many ways, when despair comes in and there is little hope at all, even a sincere desire to pray can be snuffed out. But the good news of Scripture is that there is hope. Isaiah says that a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That is that if the flame from your candle is gone and it's just that trail of smoke 
There's nothing left. He won't come in and snuff out that little wick. If the broken reed, it was a, uh, maybe a piece of grass kind of a thing that a shepherd would fashion into a sort of a whistle as he watched the sheep, said that once that reed has been used so many times, it's worthless, the shepherd would throw it out. Jesus said, a, a withered uh, uh, reed I will not destroy. I won't. That's the kind of hope that I offer, that when you're at the end, when you hit rock bottom, that's often where you find Jesus. Amen? Oftentimes, that's where you met Jesus for the first time, is when you were at the end of yourself, when your pride was over. And the reason I mention all of this is because Scripture describes the ultimate hope. And the ultimate hope in our world is that Jesus will come and reign. If you think about all the passages that deal with the future coming of a good king, who will reign in righteousness and in justice, who will right every wrong. Some have argued that it is the dominant theme of the Bible, the coming kingdom of God. This coming kingdom of God is established all the way back in Scripture. If you, uh, we'll just take a quick, brief history, but uh, you, you pray for this all the time. You may not even know it, but you pray that Matthew 6, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the next thing? Your kingdom come. Jesus instructed his followers, your kingdom come. If you were to look in just the the, uh, scripture, just the New Testament alone that describes the coming of the kingdom, uh, you would find over and over and over again Jesus using this terminology. Uh, Let's look back at Jeremiah 23. You don't have to turn there, but but I'll read this for us. In Jeremiah chapter 23, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he, branches capitalized, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. In Matthew 19.28, Jesus describes it as the regeneration. He describes it in Matthew 24 as the coming kingdom. In Acts 3.19, it's the times of refreshing that will come in the future. In 3.21 of Acts, it's the future time of restitution. In Ephesians 1.10, he describes it as the dispensation of the fullness of time. That is the age in which it brims over. That word, the fullness of time, is a Greek word that describes the point at which if you were to pour water into a glass, that moment where it comes just over the top of the, the level of the glass, where it just begins to bubble over, where one more drop would send water pouring over the sides of that cup. That describes the word, the fullness of time. That is how Ephesians 1.10 describes this thousand-year reign. In Psalm 2, let me just read Psalm 2 for us. In Psalm 2, we see uh, this description of the future coming of the kingdom. Psalm chapter 2 says, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
But the one who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my capital K king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And by the way, we read in Revelation uh, during the time before the tribulation, God gives to the seven churches this scepter, this ruling rod of iron uh, that he describes in Psalm 2.9. Now therefore, O kings, be warned, rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This final passage uh, in Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are the ones who take refuge in him. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 says, The word that Isaiah saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days, which signals the end times, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to this place. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us in His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He shall judge between all the nations and shall decide disputes for people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Meaning all their weapons will be transformed into gardening supplies. There will be no need for warfare in his millennial reign. It will be a time of utter peace and, uh, and, and with him reigning over all of those things. Uh, in that time, it says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes. Neither shall there be any war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in this light of the Lord. In Isaiah 11, and I could go on and on and on. I, I don't want to bore you too much with this. You may already be bored, and if you are, I apologize. But, but in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 11, he says, There shall come forth from the stump of Jesse a shoot, a branch, and all of his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is the interesting ecological environmental change that comes next in the book of Isaiah when Jesus establishes his reign. It says, The wolf shall lie down and dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf all together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The, the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus is describing a coming future kingdom. 
I could go on and on. Isaiah 40 through 48. All eight chapters describe this future kingdom. Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 34, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Hosea 3, Joel 3, Zephaniah 3, Zechariah 14. Uh, All of these passages point to a kingdom. And it only picks up steam when we get into the New Testament. When Jesus begins to describe the coming kingdom, let me just read for you some of the things that he describes. If I can pull it up here. In the book of Matthew, uh, it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, from that time, verse chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Verse 23, And then He went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease. Chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. Verse 19, for whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Uh, Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom. In the prayer we mentioned earlier, your kingdom come is in the Lord's prayer. Chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 721 is the warning that not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who follow the Lord in obedience by repenting and believing will enter. Uh, In chapter 8, verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom are thrown into outer darkness, there will be outer weeping and gnashing of teeth outside of that kingdom. Jesus describes in great detail. As a matter of fact, I would challenge you to take a pen or a pencil or whatever you got, a highlighter, and work through the Gospels and see how often Jesus describes the coming of the kingdom. It is the culmination. If in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were created, that paradise which was lost at the fall of Genesis 3, it is that paradise that was lost that will be regained in the millennium. You remember, the earth is completely shattered during the tribulation. There's stuff falling out of the heavens. There's holes in the earth. There's a third of the animals being wiped out, a third of the plants, a third of the trees, a third of the people. The sea life, the water is poisoned. The earth will be renovated terribly during the tribulation period. But in the end, in Jesus' established kingdom, it will be restored and renewed, and it will be a place where there is no enemy, there is no Satan, there is no devil. It will be what Eden was intended. And it will endure for a thousand years, and this is the millennial reign of Christ. It's described as the millennial reign of Christ. And it is in this that we find our hope, like my friend in Kentucky didn't have, that every person who has been oppressed, that every person who has been uh, struggling in this world, that every one of us who has encountered any trial or difficulty or persecution, we set our hopes on things that we don't see. The coming of the kingdom. And it's mentioned throughout the Bible. And we're going to get into what it looks like next week more specifically. But for today, I just want to present to you the three views that most scholars approach when it comes to the millennium. And then next week we'll get into some of the particulars. But I kind of have to set things up because Scripture isn't always clear when it comes to end times, right? When it comes to prophecy, 
Uh, we see through a glass dimly, right? Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We, we kind of see things, but it's hazy. We can't see clearly what it's going to look like. And so different theories have come up. The most natural reading of Scripture, the chronological presentation from John on the island of Patmos, from Jesus himself, presents a premillennial view. As a matter of fact, if you take a post-millennial view or an all-millennial view, you very first are challenged with the, the struggle to deal with the natural chronology of Revelation. So let me present for you what these three views look like, just in general. Pre-millennialism. That is, Jesus returns before the millennium. He comes to establish the kingdom before the thousand-year reign. That's pre-millennialism. And in this viewpoint, we see the flow of history and culture. Things get worse. Things are getting worse. Things get broken. More wars, more earthquakes, more natural disasters, more violence, more bloodshed, more terror, uh, more horrible things happening. The earth gets worse until it gets into the tribulation when that terrible state is quadrupled, right? Then it gets way worse because as we learned last week, the church being raptured, there's no longer the preaching, there's no longer the teaching, there's no longer the witness of the church. All of those things are removed and the tribulation gets bad. Then Jesus comes and sets up His reign in chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 16. Jesus comes and there's Armageddon and the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire and Jesus sets up His reign in Jerusalem. The chronology of Revelation supports this idea of premillennialism. If I can say that right. What are the other two views? And it's up to you to decide because reputable people hold to different views. The challenges, though, of post-millennialism, and post-millennialism is described as this, that Jesus comes after the millennium. He comes at the very end of the thousand years. And post-millennialism tends to flourish when there aren't wars and when there aren't natural disasters and when there aren't terrible things happening because post-millennialism has as its basic understanding that the world will get better. And it will continue to get better because the church actually sets up the kingdom. And don't, don't lose me here because this is vitally important. As I said before, if you understand the details of the future, it will affect the way you live today. So let me sort of help explain a couple of things about people who hold to a post-millennial view. The world gets better and it is the church that establishes the millennial reign of Christ. The church and its influence and its activity in the world actually improves culture. It improves culture and they throw out the idea that it's a literal thousand years and they just sort of see it as a spiritual time period that is represented by the word a thousand years or millennium. And it's really just a period of righteousness through the church. And through the church, listen close, Jesus triumphs through the church, through His people over Satan and His uh, his demons, and it leads into what's called kingdom theology, which is this idea where you see people binding Satan left and right, uh, healing people, bringing out demons. They are bringing the kingdom, and the, they are basically saying the power in the church is sufficient to bring about the kingdom reign of Christ. Why is this 
troubling. It's troubling because it spurs views like liberation theology. Liberation theology is popular in South America where it was used for believers to take up physical arms, machine guns, and to go into countries and to forcefully bring the kingdom. It is given over to people like uh, Pat Robertson, who when he ran for president, his philosophy was if the church can capture the government, if we can spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to get our guy in the White House and as leaders of other nations, and we can get the judges and we can get the airwaves and the TV and the newspapers and the internet, and if, if the church can capture by force all of those things, then we can establish the kingdom. This is where you get all of these people who are trying to forcefully establish the church's reign over our culture. It tends to spiritualize things. Some literal, but there are also figurative things. It dismisses Israel as the redemption promise. It says that Romans 11 is insignificant. That there won't be a restoration of Israel. And it took a major hit when Israel was let back into the land, right? When all these prophecies from Ezekiel began to be fulfilled. The last view is amillennialism. Spelled with an A, amillennialism basically spiritualizes everything. It says there's no literal millennium. There's no literal kingdom. It's all sort of spiritualized. And that all the kingdom that there ever will be is exactly what we have now. And that is believers in churches having a measure of victory in the spiritual sense where we're forgiven and there's grace and there's mercy, but there really is no real reigning literal Christ coming to literally reign on the earth. Jesus is actually ruling now as He is Lord of your life. Uh, Jesus completely rejects any literal understanding of Revelation and it puts us in the place of Israel where we are receiving the covenant blessings of Israel. The question to ask about all these views, these last two especially, is are, is this the kingdom? Are we living in the kingdom now? Is this the millennium? Do you see Satan bound in the abyss? Is is his influence on the world over? The answer is very simply no. If he was, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that he wouldn't be continuously blinding the eyes of those who have not received Christ. 1 Peter, Peter wouldn't have described him as currently a roaring lion seeking to devour. So is he bound or not? And if he's bound, why are all these people running around binding him again? Why are we casting out? If he's done, then why are we still struggling? So Revelation 20 presents this premillennial view. Things are bad and they're about to get worse as the tribulation comes closer. But church, it is up to us to be in a state of readiness and awareness and longing for the coming kingdom of Christ. Regardless of your view of the millennium, Jesus promised that He is coming soon, and He said it many times. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, some close count close to 300 specific prophecies that Jesus came and fulfilled. If Jesus fulfilled those prophecies that took place over 1,500 years, back to the point of Moses saying, a prophet like me will come. And if that's true... How you live now in light of the imminent return of Christ matters, as we'll see next week. 
that your life on this earth is a sort of job interview in some ways. Jesus will give you authority to have a part in His millennial reign. When we come back with Him, you will have a responsibility, and He will, we'll talk about it more next week, in many ways grade you or evaluate your time on earth according to the values that He cherishes, right? Living by faith, humility, servanthood, loving your enemies, praying for your enemies, giving generously, serving, fulfilling the gospel of the kingdom by making disciples who make disciples. Based on the way you live today, it will directly affect your millennial reality. Does that make sense? God will do something with you, Christ follower, if you have given your life to Jesus, you've repented of your sins, and you've put your faith in Him, you will have something to do in the millennial. In the millennial. Millennium. Sorry, it's a tongue twister. And it depends on what you do with the gifts He gives you now. And so my charge to you, really, in all of this, through this, this week and next week, We to live in readiness and in an awakeness and in a sense of eager expectation and working to bring about and to establish, help Jesus in this coming of His kingdom. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its clarity. We thank You, Lord, for its detail of future events. That what it prophesied 2,000 years ago and that was fulfilled 1,000 years later we can see that if it was prophesied in 90 A.D., that specific prophecies are even now coming true, that we should not neglect the words of Jesus to John on the island of Patmos as He describes the future coming millennium and the reign of Jesus Christ over this earth. We thank You for the fact that You hold all times in Your hands and that there is no better place to be than in refuge with You, Lord Jesus. So I pray that all those who hear my voice today, that they might be eagerly expecting, waiting for the coming of Jesus, looking for it, and in the meantime, working, working to make disciples who can make disciples, sharing the Gospel and living a life of anticipation and holiness. So that when we, when you return, you may not find us in shame or in an unrepentant state. But that we would give our lives to you, Lord Jesus, and live for you now. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen.